Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Good morning. It's Todd Marquardt, host of Talk Law Radio. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only, and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing or failing to do your will. Please help attorney Alex Vollmer and me give good information to the listeners about gun laws today and help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we have a special guest, attorney Alex Vollmer. Uh, he is new to Marquardt Law Firm and he brings uh, some experience and knowledge about uh, gun trusts and gun laws. Um, but before we get started talking about that, I just want to mention that I'm passionate about the literal interpretation of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, and I know that not everybody feels that way. Uh, so if you don't feel that way, uh, you might be offended uh, by the content of today's show. And if you are, you might want to just tune in next week. Um, some people have had bad experiences with uh, criminals that have done something wrong with a firearm. And uh, my heart goes out to you if you have suffered in that way. Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is how law-abiding citizens can stay in compliance with the law and exercise their Second Amendment rights within the full extent of the law. Mr. Vollmer, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, will you give us a, a background uh, about yourself? Yes, absolutely. Um, in reference to today's topic, you know, well, I... Well, uh, and, and your education yeah, and, and so uh, forth. So I uh, got my undergraduate degree in a... Uh, Bachelor of Arts in English Literature uh, from University of Texas San Antonio, and then I got my uh, JD at St. Mary's University School of Law here in San Antonio as well, and I started my professional career at the Bear County District Attorney's Office as a prosecutor, and from there moved into primarily uh, defense work uh, based on my experience at the DA's office, did that for about eight years, and uh, now I've moved on to my next adventure. Great, and we're glad to have uh, you talking to us today about your experience with gun laws. I think that the oldest gun law on the books is the Second Amendment. 
What do you think? It has to be. It's one of the founding precepts of our nation. Um, and it is it's – it's an original source. Right. So that means that it, it's one of the, the foundations that, of the law that other laws are built on, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's been subject of much controversy and discussion of what the words mean and how many commas there are in it and where those commas are. Uh, it's been broken down by uh, uh, grammar experts probably more than any other single constitutional right. Well, I like to think about it uh, in a, in its most simplest way, just by the words that are there, um, that we are to have the right to keep and bear arms. I think that the plain meaning of – or the plain text of the right says exactly that. And uh, my that's my belief that there's not that much room to interpret what – the right to keep and bear arms, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But there's other laws out there, cr criminal laws that are to, to prevent people from being harmed. If I punch you in the face, that's illegal. It's, it's assault. And uh, it's assault whether I use my fist or a baseball bat or um, – uh, Anything else? Of course. Um, the constitutional rights that the Bill of Rights protects in the United States, they're not unlimited. Um, the First Amendment can be restricted. Uh, the Establishment Clause, uh, the freedom of speech, everything can be restricted um, under certain variations of scrutiny. Uh, how How – Important is the objective of the government in restricting that right. How far does it go? And uh, of course, there have to be laws. Otherwise, people could use these completely unrestricted freedoms to work anarchy. Right. So there, there are gun laws that uh, don't violate the Constitution. Many. And so what would be a big one that has been around for a long time? One of the oldest modern gun laws uh, probably is the National Firearms Act of 1934, which governs most of what uh, the topic of today is. Um, it is a combination – really what the modern NFA is, a combination of that 1934 Firearms Act and the 1968 Gun Control Act. But the 1934 Firearms Act um, – it's enforced by the ATF and it created a tax and regulation on certain classes of weapons. Yeah, you know what's interesting to me about 1934? Well, that's when there were like uh, organized crime. That's when they uh, started using more powerful g guns like machine guns, Tommy Absolutely. guns. Um, one of my materials that I've used in continuing legal education presentations on the NFA uh, includes a catalog advertisement for a mail order Thompson submachine gun from 19, I think, 31. So before <laughs> 34, you could buy one of those from the catalog. Absolutely. And, and one of the major impetuses for these uh, laws was crimes such as the, the St. Valentine's Day massacre. It's an exact – it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. So, so do you remember what happened there? I believe it was a uh, a mob hit carried out by either Capone or one of his associates in front – just on the street and uh, people were just – And they used machine mm, guns, I sure guess. They sure did, yes. And so the, the thought, I guess, was that – if Congress levied a tax, then uh, people wouldn't be able to afford to buy these guns? Well, yes, that's correct. And the tax has been the same dollar amount since the act was passed in 1934. And it's 
been $200 ever since, which adjusted for inflation in 2018 would have been $3,746. So it was an effective ban on anything that was regulated by the National Firearms Act for anybody but the wealthy. Yeah, and I guess that has that that was effective in doing that. It was effective for a very very long time. Um as inflation has continued, these things have become more and more affordable and they've become actually more mainstream in uh the second amendment and firearms and sporting enthusiast uh circles. If you're just joining us, it's Todd Marquardt, your host of Talk Law Radio on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Here with me this morning is attorney Alex Vollmer. He has uh, experience dealing with gun laws uh, on the criminal side, both prosecuting and defense. And he also has uh, experience with what has been called a gun trust or a firearms trust. And so we're going to be talking about all kinds of issues that come up uh, with regards to law-abiding citizens exercising their Second Amendment rights to own and, and use firearms. So, Alex, um, we're, we're talking about the 1934 NFA. What does NFA stand for again? The National Firearms Act. And so... What firearms are regulated under that act? So firearm is a technical term and the NFA lists out what qualifies as a, quote, firearm. It can be a suppressor, um, more commonly known as a silencer, a machine gun, which is a firearm that will shoot more than one bullet per pull of the trigger, uh, short-barreled rifles, which are rifles having a barrel less than 16 inches, and short-barreled shotguns, which are shotguns having a barrel less than 18 inches, uh, destructive devices uh, such as anything over 50 caliber rockets and grenades, that gets complicated, and something known as any other weapon uh, such as a pin gun or a cane gun, a disguised weapon, and some other things. Okay. Well, that's a, a lot of weapons that <laughs> most people probably wouldn't use, but um, before 1934, it was in their right to use and own. Um, I had heard that there was a, a court case, I don't remember the name, that said that um, it was constitutional to ban these types of firearms because uh, these firearms weren't even used in the military. Yes, I, the name of the case escapes me right now. It was a case that essentially said, and there is more you know, legal uh, history here, but it essentially said that you can't ban a class of weapons uh, simply because they are used in the military or aren't used. Let's take a break. You've heard him on Talk Law Radio. Now work with his firm yourself. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trusts, and powers of attorney. Want to have a say on who will get your money and assets when you die instead of leaving it up to a judge? Then you need a proper estate plan in place, and Marquardt Law Firm can help you do just that. They can also develop a strategy for your long-term care financing and help maneuver the complicated Medicaid process for your family. Call them today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. Call 210-530-4278. Again, that's 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. MarquardtLawFirm.com. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt. Here with me this morning is attorney Alex Vollmer, and we are discussing the Second Amendment the 1934 NFA, which uh, regulates uh, certain types of firearms. And before the break, uh, we had mentioned that there was a Supreme Court case. Uh, what case was that, Alex? Uh, that case was U.S. v. Miller. And uh, that was a case in which essentially the holding of the Supreme Court was that the possession of 
a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun uh, was not protected by the Second Amendment because it was not rationally related uh, to the preservation efficiency or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Um, that jurisprudence has changed in the intervening decades. So the case law has been developing for almost 100 years. Since that case, we didn't have a law or a, uh, a Supreme Court opinion uh, that ruled on an individual's right to own a firearm until 2008 in Heller versus District of Columbia. Oh, okay. I would have figured that there would be a whole lot more. There are some sort of very, very technical, very, very different, but that don't touch the fundamental right because Heller versus District of Columbia answers the question, does an individual person have the right to own and carry a firearm for self-defense within the home? And what did they rule? They ruled that there is an individual right to own firearms and own a firearm in the home for the right of self-defense. Uh Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's They got it right. It's a it's a fantastic opinion by Justice Scalia, wrote the majority opinion, and I highly recommend reading it. <laughs> uh, Scalia has a very distinct style, uh, and it lays out a fantastic history of the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um it's it's actually a really, really good read, even if you know, you don't you're not even in the habit of reading case law. Yeah. Okay, so the, there was that case uh, that said that we have individual rights to own firearms. Um, when it comes to the uh, the NFA of 1934, that law still stands, though, right? Yes, that that law does still stand. Uh, that is one of the ways. It's one of it's an example of how even constitutional rights are subject to reasonable restrictions and. Uh, it is still legal to own those weapons, those firearms, but you have to go through a uh, a process. And now, however, in some states, it is not allowed. So uh, these are this is the federal law. This is the federal law, and then states can further restrict what they allow. Um, as long as it doesn't violate the Second Amendment. Correct. Correct. As long as they don't go too far. Um, so in Texas, we can own anything that is allowed under the – anything that is regulated by the National Firearms Act. So t the state of Texas is not more restrictive than that? No, it is not more restrictive than the federal law. It's one of, one of the friendliest gun states if you didn't know. <laughs> And so what are some of the problems that even a, a law-abiding citizen could run into? I mean, w could I accidentally own a, a shotgun that is less than 16 inches? Uh, absolutely. And there you point out a perfect example of how you can get into trouble. The law on a short-barreled shotgun requires the barrel to be 18 inches or more, not 16 inches. And the definitions and the laws are very complex. They're arbitrary. Why should a shotgun need to be 18 inches, but a rifle can be 16 inches? Oh, I see. It doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, but that two inches will get you in trouble if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, in addition to that, the ATF, the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms has a history of arbitrarily, capriciously, and suddenly changing their interpretation of rules. Uh, just recently, just last year, uh, I think on, uh, on September 24th, it was the ATF's policy to measure the overall length of a firearm one way. Uh, say you had a rifle with a folding stock. They said, you unfold it, you measure the complete unfolded length. Then the next day, the rule was you measure it folded. And if it fell under a certain length, it's regulated by the ATF as, an, as any other weapon. Oh. And all of a sudden, you have 
an unregistered NFA firearm because they just decided to change how they're defining it. Mm-hmm. Not not subsequent to any legislation. Uh, it's the same thing that happened with the bump stock ban. Uh, it was an executive order. Uh, the ATF is a government agency that is responsible for the interpretation of the statute passed by Congress. And they were told by the president who directs the agencies uh, to ban bump stocks. And so they just said, okay, bump stocks are machine guns now. And they don't fall under the definition. There have been zero arrests and zero prosecutions for owning a bump stock past the ban, but I wouldn't want to be the test case. Right. Yeah. And uh, it just puts you in a position that it's it's one of the advantages that gun trusts offer is it, it allows you some maneuverability and the ability to change things. So before you start talking yeah. about gun trusts, um, let's talk about if if you were just an individual that um, wanted to buy one of these weapons, um, how do you pay that tax that we talked about, that $200? So the general rule is that if you can qualify – if you could pass a background check at a gun store, you can go through the process of NFA approval by the ATF. Um, they do the same background check. If you're doing it as an individual, it's very much like having a background check done except you pay $200 for the privilege of having the background check done. Uh, you submit fingerprint cards to the FBI so they can do the background check. You have to notify the chief law enforcement officer of the area you live in that you are making the application. A chief law enforcement officer could be the sheriff. Uh, it could be the district attorney. Uh, it really depends. Um, and then you have to fill out this application that is very technical. And if you don't do it right, it can get kicked back to you. And the wait times are not insignificant. So you want to have everything done right the first time. Uh, and then you – you send the application in, you pay the tax, and you wait. And then they do all the, the background checks and everything, and then they – Yes. As an individual, they do a background check and run your fingerprints and make sure that the uh, application is filled out correctly and that the state you're in allows that application to be approved. And then if they approve it, they literally put a stamp on your application and like like a postage stamp it's uh-huh. a tax stamp and they stamp it paid with a rubber with a rubber stamp and mail it back to you and then you can either go pick up your firearm if you bought it from a store or you can assemble it if you re- if you submitted an application to make or register a restricted firearm so this would allow uh, a single individual person to possess that specific firearm. Yes. And it is the fastest method by a small margin uh, to getting these approved. But there are, in my opinion, serious disadvantages to doing it as an individual that outweigh the slight uh, reduction in wait time. So there's another way, but before we get there, I just want to mention that you're listening to Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt, on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And with us today is attorney Alex Vollmer, who has spent a lot of time and energy uh, supporting the Second Amendment and representing individuals who are gun enthusiasts. And he just happens to work for Marquardt Law Firm, which sponsors this show. Okay, Alex. So uh, before we go to a break, we'll just briefly introduce um, some other ways that uh, somebody could submit their application to own uh, an NFA uh, firearm under the 1934 NFA. Right. So there's really three ways. You can do it as an individual. You can do it as a corporation such as an LLC, in which case the corporation would own the firearms and you would be a responsible person 
that could have possession of those firearms mm-hmm. or similarly a trust. You can make an application with a firearms trust. The trust owns the firearms and you have access to them as a responsible person who is legally entitled to possession without breaking any laws as trustee of that trust. And these alternate methods, um, did, did they exist in 1934, um, setting up a trust or forming a corporation? Well, not as specific provisions of the NFA. Um, the reason that these three methods exist is because all three of these are considered persons by law. So a corporation uh, and even a trust to some extent is considered an entity that can file this paperwork under the National Firearms Act. And after we get back from the break, uh, you'll explain um, why the NFA Gun Trust has become so popular. Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt. And today we have with us, talking about uh, gun laws and gun trusts, attorney Alex Vollmer. And before the break, we were talking about the different ways that you could file an application to own and possess a regulated NFA firearm. Uh, Alex, remind us what those three ways are. The three methods are as an individual, uh, as a corporation, or as a trust. Okay, and so let, let's go through. We already talked about the application uh, as an individual. So what would be the advantages or disadvantages of uh, using a corporation? Well, since the only two methods left are corporation and trust, and you know, if you're not considering individual, there are no advantages to using a corporation, in my opinion, um, unless you like filing another tax return and holding meetings and <laughs> doing that kind of stuff. Um, corp, you know, to have a corporation, you have to establish a corporation and you have to follow the the laws of the state of Texas on running a corporation and filing requirements and pay fees and file taxes. It's Unless you've already got a concern going and you don't mind mingling those assets, which eh, – I wouldn't recommend I, I, that. I wouldn't either. Um there's really not much of a – there's not really any advantage to using a corporation over And there's a, a disadvantage, I would think, because it, it's not private. You have to file something. That is another – yes, that is a very, very, very big disadvantage. Um, with a trust, you don't have to file it anywhere. It is a document that doesn't have to appear on any public records. Uh, and uh, you know we can get into it later about – the fact that it's a non-probate asset, but uh, I think you wanted to go somewhere else first. Right. So you do have to submit it to the ATF, mm-hmm. and, um, but that's not public record. No, it's not a public record. As a matter of fact, there's a law in the books that they are supposed to shred all the applications um, once they're uh, resolved. Whether or not they do that, I don't know, but – the law is that they're supposed to destroy the records of the application. You know, I used to worry about that kind of thing. Um, but then I realized that uh, they've got bigger fish to fry. That is very true. <laughs> that is very <laughs> they're true. They're not worried about me necessarily. No, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, so we've got this trust. What are What are some advantages to using a trust? By far, the biggest advantage to using a trust is that – you can designate multiple responsible persons. And if you remember earlier, I defined a responsible person as somebody with the legal right to possess, to be in possession, have physical control over those NFA firearms. So as an individual, if you get an application approved and you have, you know, go, say you go pick up your suppressor that you want to take hunting, you cannot lend it to your friend to hunt in another blind on the same piece of property. It 
is illegal. If they're holding it, they could probably get in trouble. It depends. Um, if you're in the immediate vicinity as such that you could, you know, you're supervising it, it's that doesn't count as possession, technical possession. No, but it, you know, it's it's a gray area. It's a, it's a perfect example of a gray area where how far away can that person go? How close do you have to be to still maintain? possession and control over that NFA firearm. And you don't want to beat the conviction but still have to ride downtown. Right. <laughs> but like they say, you might beat the rat but you don't beat the ride. Um, but it, it, it's that is solved with an NFA trust. So when you establish an NFA trust, uh, you name yourself as the trustee. The trustee is the person who has the right – to possess and uh, assert control over these NFA firearms. With a trust, you can name co-trustees and you can name as many as you want. You can add them and you can remove them and you can have multiple people at the same time with the right to possess these items without violating the law. And if you'd like, I can give you an example. Okay. So let's say Bob... Uh, applies for a tax stamp and gets a suppressor as an individual. He's got it at home, leaves it on his coffee table, uh, doesn't tell his wife, and she goes into the living room to hang out on Saturday. And uh, she's sitting there. She doesn't think anything of it. It's just sitting out there. Well, she's not a responsible person. And let's say he leaves the house to go grocery shopping. She's there alone right next to this NFA firearm. She's technically violating the law and could be charged with unlawful possession of an NFA firearm. Which would be like penalty of imprisonment and fines? Uh, yes. Uh, starting around 10 years. Uh, if Bob had established a trust, he could name his wife as a co-trustee and he could hand it to her and she could drive it to Amarillo. Because she is a co-trustee, she has the legal right to be in possession without violating the law. Um, let's say Bob has a friend, a lifelong friend who they go hunting all the time. Uh, let's say he wants to add him as a trust, a co-trustee. Uh, Bob would have, the, or his friend would have that same right to possess the the, the silencer or suppressor. And let's say they have a falling out. Well, then Bob can remove his lifelong friend as a, as a trustee from the trust and. It's not a problem. So the reason – one of the reasons the trust became popular was because uh, back in the olden days, before 2016, <laughs> um, you actually had to uh, get the chief law enforcement officer to sign something. Is that right? So before F41 is what they call it. It's a it, – it was a proposed rule change by the ATF in 2016. It used to be there was a different process to apply as an individual than as a trust. So they kind of harmonized all three different approaches. It used to be as an individual, you had to submit fingerprints and you used to have to get a, a chief law enforcement officer sign off on the application stating that you were not a prohibited person. A prohibited person is someone that could not pass a background check. Felony convictions, adjudicated, mentally deficient, um, anything like that. Domestic violence. Domestic violence convictions. Habitual drug yes. user. Mm -hmm. So there was a problem where you have sheriffs in some jurisdictions that just say they're not going to sign them. And so they have a they have a pocket ban on NFA firearms in their county. If you want to do it as an individual, well, as a trust at the time, you didn't have to get a chief law enforcement officer sign off and you didn't have to submit fingerprints. So – and same for a corporation. So they harmonized those three approaches by saying everybody has to submit fingerprints and you have to notify the chief law enforcement officer of the area that you have filed an application. They don't have to approve it. And they weren't – they never were approving it. They were just signing a statement that said this is not a prohibited person. We don't have any records. Um, so no more Clio sign off and, uh, an addition of fingerprint submission for every application for every responsible so person. So for those co-trustees, 
they have to submit their fingerprints. That's correct. You have to you have to submit a responsible person questionnaire for every responsible person that is on the trust. And you have to submit finger fingerprint cards. Um fingerprint cards are surprisingly easy to do yourself. I've done it. And I've never had them rejected. Oh, good. Yeah. So then the power of the trust though uh would would dictate which trustee, even though they had passed the background check and, and had their stamp, uh, whether or not they they could possess the firearm. So as the creator of the trust, you could still be in control of who could use the weapon, right? Absolutely. In any well-crafted NFA trust, it is going to have provisions saying the person that created the trust is going to be the primary trustee. They're going to have more powers than any other trustee. Uh, it's going to de essentially define any other trustee as a co-trustee and say the co-trustee is the only one that can add or remove a trustee. The, the primary trustee is the only one that can uh, make certain decisions. You can tailor it. You can write it how you want, but it—you know, you're just making sure. Is it likely to happen? No, but you're making sure that you can't get kicked off your own trust by your ex-friends. Right. Yeah. Or your ex-spouse. True. Yes. Okay. So we're here with uh, attorney Alex Vollmer uh, on Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt, talking about uh, gun laws and gun trusts. And uh, so far, we've been talking about the 1934 National Firearms Act and regulated firearms that you have to submit an application and, and get approved before you can actually purchase one of these firearms. Um, you you mentioned, Alex, uh, using a suppressor while hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, some people that don't hunt or don't know anything about firearms uh, would probably like to know what what's the advantage of using a suppressor while hunting? Well, I'm glad we're using the term suppressor because silencer is a very, very inaccurate word. Um, you know, people have this impression from the movies of, you know, a little gun that goes and just doesn't make any noise. Right. And it's just under the right circumstances with special ammunition and special guns. Yeah, they can be that quiet, but they're not practical. But what it does do is it lowers the noise down to a level where – you know, I grew up hunting. I have damaged hearing because sometimes hearing protection didn't do a good enough job. So I wear earplugs inside and then put over-ear protection on mm -hmm. now because it affects me. And it lowers the noise down to a level where – It doesn't damage your it, hearing. It, it Even more than that, you can shoot without hearing protection on. It's not recommended, but – it makes the overall experience much, much, much better. And especially if you're considering something like young hunter's ears, mm -hmm. it it's, there's not a question of which way you'd rather go. You would rather have something that, you know, you don't have to wrap somebody's head in soundproofing to make sure their ears aren't damaged. Yeah, and it could give you a headache, too. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so uh, before we take our last break... Uh, just wanted to mention this is your host, Todd Marquardt with Talk Law Radio, and we'll talk about the estate planning advantages of using a trust to purchase and apply for your uh, NFA uh, regulated gun. Stay tuned. You've heard him on Talk Law Radio. Now work with his firm yourself. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trusts, and powers of attorney. Want to have a say on who will get your money and assets when you die instead of leaving it up to a judge? Then you need a proper estate plan in place, and Marquardt Law Firm can help you do just that. It can also develop a strategy for your long-term care financing and help maneuver the complicated Medicaid process for your family. Call them today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. Call 210-530-4278. Again, that's 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. MarquardtLawFirm.com.
Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt. Here with me today is attorney Alex Vollmer, and he is talking about the laws of uh, guns and firearms, and we've been talking about the use of a gun trust. Uh, Alex, what are some other advantages to using a trust instead of a corporation or filing as an individual? So a trust is what we call a non-probate asset, which means uh, it makes estate planning much, much easier. Uh, What a non-probate asset means is that you don't have to go through court proceedings to distribute property, say, once someone has passed. Uh, The trustee of the trust distributes it to the beneficiaries. Right, and if you're gonna, right then and there. And if you're going to use a trust anyway, you might as well incorporate it into your overall plan for who gets your stuff after you pass away. Absolutely. And a gun trust is going to have some specific – some provisions specific to firearms um, such as what to do if you have a distributee, someone who would take property uh, when a trust uh, is completed to – for example, uh, let's say someone that was going to get some of that property is a prohibited person. You can have conditions in there that will say, okay, how, how is this property uh, distributed? Are we going to sell this piece of property and we give them the money? Uh, we can't give them a gun. They're a convicted felon or they're an illegal drug user. We can't. So you make specific provisions for that. You give the trustee or the successor trustee uh, the power of sale. Uh, one provision that people really like is that the assets of the trust, I have many different NFA firearms in my collection. And one provision that makes a lot of sense is that if they're distributed, they're to be, to be distributed by number, uh, instead of, it, it prevents you from having to liquidate the assets, mm-hmm. uh, of the estate to make sure everybody gets an even share. Uh, you know, if you had a certain number of firearms, you can def- you can specify that they get divided up by number instead of just liquidated, everybody gets the money. And that, right. that talks about, that speaks to preserving your collection and making sure that, uh, you know, things that had meaning to you get passed down and, that hopefully your passions are are, are kept alive, and uh, through these things, you know, you can be remembered, or uh, good times can be remembered. But uh, you know, there's a lot more that goes into uh, the actual estate planning aspects of it. Uh, well, you- something else that I thought of, Alex, was. Um- a trust you can you can put living terms in there also and something that i've noticed after doing estate planning for 15 plus years is that uh, we need to think about more than just what happens after we die because uh, physicians have figured out how to keep us alive so long uh, i see a lot of people living with disabilities and incapacity and alzheimers and dementia mm-hmm. and if if you develop Alzheimer's or dementia through no fault of your own, well, you've accidentally become a prohibited person. Exactly, and and, and these trusts contain provisions for that. They they contain provisions for what happens if a trustee becomes incapacitated. Uh, what if a beneficiary uh, becomes incapacitated? Uh, it has provisions for. Do you, if you don't have co-trustees, it has provisions for naming successor trustees. It's a very important distinction between a trustee or a co-trustee and a successor trustee. A successor trustee is not actually a trustee. It's not somebody, yet. Right. Not yet. It's somebody that has been specifically named by the person who created the trust to step into the role should they accept it. Until they are actually a trustee or a co-trustee, a successor trustee would be in violation of the law if they were possessing these items. So that's something to consider. But They it, have to file something 
after death in, in order to um, transfer the firearm then, right? Yes, depending on who it's being distributed to. Uh, it, you know, if you just have incapacity, that's one thing. But uh, when you are distributing the firearms, the ATF provides for one tax-free, one lifetime tax-free transfer um, from one estate oh, I to didn't another. Know that. Yep, that's correct. So you don't have to pay the tax all over again. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good reason to use a trust. And why would I want to use a, an attorney to prepare this trust? Well, there are <laughs> many reasons. I like attorneys. I'm an attorney, <laughs> but I know that there's lots of gun enthusiasts out there that. You know, you spend your whole life trying to avoid getting in trouble with the law, and mm-hmm. you think, if I see an attorney, that means I'm in trouble. So I will say this. A good gun trust costs less than a good gun, and it is a document that should last a lifetime or more. You can use the same trust document for an unlimited number of applications for NFA firearms to the if ATF. If you have a good attorney who prepares it, I've, right. I've seen bad gun trusts that list one specific serial number and, and, and that's it. Yep. And th- well, that's kind of – there are things such as trust mills um, or one-shot trusts or something that's, that's pretty popular. Uh, and they are trusts that are offered – trust documents that are offered by – Non-attorneys. Non-attorneys, uh, salespeople, uh, mm-hmm. and and that scares the willies out of me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that document for anything. Uh, and then you have trust mills, which are places that just, you know, maybe they have, you know, attorneys working for them. That, but I mean, they're trying to turn them out and churn them, turn them and burn them so fast. You have an attorney that you trust. Or that it comes recommended draft you an NFA trust. You're going to get terms and drafting specifically tailored for your circumstances and needs, your requirements, your family composition, situation, uh, your future plans, and in addition to that, if there ever is a problem, you've got somebody. That wrote the trust, that knows you and knows your situation. Uh, if things change, your living situation changes, if you need to divest yourself of some of these items, uh, if you, you know, like I said, are moving, or if you want to even change the name of your trust or some of the terms, well, call the guy that drafted it. You got a, a trust from a, a trust mill. You don't you have no idea who drafted it. So the planning could continue um, just based on life changes. Uh, sometimes things change within our families. Sometimes things uh, change with our finances. So that's when I would recommend that somebody talk to their estate planning attorney. You mentioned a while ago that um, the firearms are often a source of a legacy within family because – uh, this is something that uh, generations will remember their uh, loved ones by. Um, we focus on legacy planning at Marquardt Law Firm. And since Marquardt Law Firm is a sponsor of Talk Law Radio, we like to ask our guest uh, about their legacy. So what would you like your legacy to be? My family has been hunting in South Texas for a long time, and it's not just hunting. It's my father always put it as you know stewardship of the land. Mm-hmm. It's the pristine nature, the undisturbed nature of the land out there that we have control over. I want to leave something for future generations in a better state than I found it. And I know a lot of people don't understand this, but hunting actually helps improve the land. It's not just the hunting, you know, it's uh, all the, all the wildlife out there. 
It's an ecosystem. It is an incredible ecosystem, and it's incredibly diverse. And, you know, if you just drive through it down the highway, you miss everything. If you get out and walk, you see unbelievable birds and bugs and lizards. Um, we've been out there. My dad's been out there, I think, going on 55 or 60 years now. And he sees new stuff all the time. And is always fascinated by how does how does this little thing live here? I mean, where does it get enough water or food to eat? Right. And uh, there aren't a lot of places left like that. And you know what I worry about is with the way uh, Texas towns and cities are growing. I see clear cutting uh, forests. You know, just on the edge of town. Uh, where the natural whitetail used to live. And I, I have this fear that uh, my grandchildren are going to have to go to the zoo to see a whitetail. Yeah, and one of the problems is that the wildlife doesn't always move out of the area as far as quickly as they should. Anybody that's been driving through the hill country has probably had a either a close brush with a white tail or maybe hit one um but it's dangerous uh, it is and one of the great things about texas is texas is you know it just blows my mind there's states out there where there's vir virtually no privately owned land and texas is one of the last bastions of privately owned land in the country and luckily I think Texans are passionate about that. And, you know, we have something of a unique origin in the United States being our own country at one point. And so you want to help conserve and preserve that somehow. Absolutely. Thanks, Alex, for joining me on Talk Law Radio on 930 AM, The Answer.